0: Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. Today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Simon Fanshaw. Simon is a writer, a broadcaster. He's one of the co-founders of Stonewall. Also a comedian, he won the Perrier Comedy Award in 1989. And he's recently written a book. It's called The Power of Difference. And during our conversation, we obviously discussed the book. And we discussed issues relating to equality and diversity and the future of Stonewall. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Simon, you've just written this book about diversity, and this is obviously something that you've been interested in for a long, long time. Why do you think that you needed to speak about this particular issue in the current climate?
1: Well, one does these things partly because one can. So, you know, lockdown was a handy excuse, given that I had no work. So I thought the least I could do was write a book. And it was a lovely summer thing to do. So that was part of it. It was on the tip of my tongue. And the question really is why it was on the tip of my tongue. And what I discovered writing the book, really, was I was able to articulate the fact that I was seriously anxious that this idea about diversity, which is about the embrace of difference and about its combination was increasingly, in the experience that I was seeing in companies that we were working with in our own consultancy, was increasingly being used as a tool of conformity. So rather than inclusion, for instance, being of its essence about difference, I mean, if we weren't different, we wouldn't need to talk about inclusion. What was happening was that there was a danger that people were saying, well, in order to be inclusive, you have to think like this, speak like this, behave like this. And if you don't, we'll exclude you. So what I wanted to explore, really, and and advocate for was that fundamentally human notion that the only thing that we have in common is that we're all different. And where does that get us and what does that throw up in terms of what we have to deal simply by being with each other?
0: Yes. Well, I mean, you make a very good case in the book about the importance of of diversity. But as you allude to there it's it, it's sort of changed its meaning uh, in recent years. So now when corporations push for diversity in the boardroom or whatever, they mean uh, a set of people who ostensibly seem very, they look very different, but they all think the same way, say the same things and believe in the same values. Is that really what you're trying to explore here?
1: What I'm trying to explore, I think, is there's something uh, really fundamentally human about this, which is that actually you and I can never understand how each other sees the world perceives the world experiences the world but the only journey worth going on in that context is the fact that we will that we that, that we can try and discover how, how each other does that in the certain knowledge that we never will yeah. and so it's the journey it's the journey and the understanding the acceptance of the fundamental idea of disagreement of conflict of difference. That is a fundamental human condition. And therefore, if we're going to collaborate and we're going to make success of ourselves, whether in relationships or in work, you know, personal relationships or in work, we've got to understand each other's difference, knowing that we never will. And so that was where I wanted to start. So you're right. The danger is that from the very best of motives, people are trying to say, well, hang on a sec, there are lots of things in the world that people think and people say that we don't like. So what we'll try and do is we'll try and sort of stop them saying it because they're upsetting and offending other people which you know there's a very good intention there but actually the fundamental outcome of that is that people don't stop thinking those things and they only say them in certain places and that doesn't move us on.
0: Something you said that is very interesting about the way in which you know we can never really get inside someone else's head but we can make an effort To do so, can't we? We can move towards that, you know. As As Atticus Finch says in *To Kill a Mockingbird*, this idea of you never know someone unless you walk around in their skin. Uh, So there's an acknowledgement that we we can never really see the world in the way that someone else can. But there are universal experiences that bind us, that connect us, that transcend uh, issues of identity and 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 race, gender, sexuality, that
1: kind of thing. Would you say that's right? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, yes, there are. There must be some very basic things that we experience as human beings with each other, we experience the the physical thrill of of love or affection, I suppose, unless we're a psychopath. We we experience, I mean, one of the peculiar things that laughter, actually, is that in my 10 years as a comic, it was one of the most weird things was that you knew that there was something that if you said it and said it a certain way, a thousand people would all laugh. Well, there was, always, there was three that wouldn't, but let's set them aside. Uh, do you know what I mean? So there is something, there are some fundamental things, but I still think that it's difficult to know whether we share them in the same way. Um, and I, I mean, I'm in, I, a lot of this, I've, I'm sure, has been put into high relief for me over the last 10 years because I'm married to a Nigerian man. And... We never know. He's younger than me. And we never know whether he's also Muslim and we never know whether, and he's African and I'm European and he's Nigerian and I'm British. And so it goes on. We never know why we don't understand each other. We never know whether that's cultural Is that to do with language? He didn't start speaking English till he was a teenager. Is that, you know, and so it goes on. So it's a fascinating journey for me, thrown into very high relief. But just because the headlines of our relationship are, you know, very stark, I think everybody must see that in their relationship. I mean, there are moments when you wake up in the morning, don't you, and you look at your partner and think, I have no idea who you are.
0: I know exactly what you mean. I suppose I think what has happened in recent years is that uh, there's a kind of a new form of identity politics that, if anything, um, promotes the idea uh, that group identity above all things is what matters. And there's an inherent uh, symbiosis within particular groups, almost, almost a kind of tendency to treat all gay people as a monolith, all black people as a monolith. And, and I don't think that's helpful. I mean, for instance, when activists claim that uh, young black schoolchildren cannot engage with Shakespeare because he was white, I just think to myself, well, I have more in common with uh, black people in the UK today than I do with uh, a white man who was born in the 1500s. You know, so, so it feels like, in a, in a sense, the group identity emphasis has become a reductive thing.
1: I, I think that's right. I, look, I think there's a value in group identity insofar as. So if you think about racism, for instance, the thing about prejudice is that prejudice is not clever. So prejudice doesn't make any distinctions around the finer nuances of individual identity, background, family, religion. Frankly, if you're not white, you're a whatever. Similarly, I mean, I find this in, this, in the, the sort of alphabet soup of the lesbian and gay and et cetera world. You know, to be honest, actually, prejudice is pretty binary. You know, when that fist hits you in the face, to be honest, I'm afraid, and I'm going to say something offensive here, it's because you're a puff or a leser. You know, in other words, prejudice is pretty stupid. So, if we're trying to measure discrimination against a group, then that's a different thing from when we encounter people as individuals or as subdivisions of that group or, or wherever. And the idea that that we that we almost reverse racism and say young black people can't understand Shakespeare seems to me to be a a misunderstanding. Of, of if, if I can say it this way, that tool of analysis. And there's a, there's a great group, um, uh, they had a conference a couple of years ago called Hashtag and they basically said, look, we are people from different families, religions, geographies, tribes, groups, races, et cetera. The only thing we have in common is that we experience racism, so don't reduce us to an acronym. And they wanted to, and so I think it's the, you've got to hold two thoughts in your mind at once is that there is a value in understanding group experience. So we know from different sets of data that, you know, women experience particular disadvantages in the labor market but we can measure that. But that doesn't mean to say that every woman experiences that in the same way or every woman has the same talents, aspirations, or ambitions.
0: Yeah. I mean, to give an example from, uh, uh, the anti-racist group Don't Divide Us. They, they tweeted out today, there is nothing liberal or progressive about the idea that white people live white lives and think white thoughts and black people live black lives and think black thoughts. Anyone trying to bring toxic racial determinism back from the dead must be stopped. And I think, to me, this sort of gets to the heart of this idea, is that you end up in a situation... I mean, you've described the stupidity of prejudice, and I agree with you with that 100%. It is stupid and binary. But I do see that kind of mentality reflected in the idea mm. that overemphasises group identity at the expense of the individual. I don't think it's as dangerous by any means. I'm not trying to make a moral equivalence there. But what I'm saying is I see an equivalent stupidity to it.
1: I think that, I think that's a, I think that is a, an important thought. And the reason it's an important thought that has become increasingly apparent, well, there's two reasons, I think. One is, so for instance, I mentioned that my husband was Nigerian. So he's a black African. His perception of himself being black is articulated in a very different way. He experiences, as far as I can understand, when I've heard him talk and heard him talk with other black people from Britain in a very different way. So his experience of being black in Britain He shares with other people because he's being black in a majority white country, but he comes from a majority black country. Similarly, uh, Paul Gilroy, the great black uh, historian, talks about in America, you know, I mean, this is one of the giant black intellectuals (laughs) of the world, talks about how you can't legitimately talk about a black culture in America because Philly, Detroit, LA, New York, they're all different, you know, different forms of music, Of course they have common themes and there are some common underlying experiences but i go back to my point about what are you trying to describe and the idea that you're going back to trying to describe a life experience in terms of a racial categorization feels to me unhelpful because you're trying to encompass a whole life i always say to people you know being gay may describe me but it doesn't define me
0: yeah there's something quite interesting about the, uh something you mentioned in your book when you talk about identity politics. And this, this, when you wrote about this, it actually struck me as, as a very sound way of looking at it, that identity politics does serve a function, but particularly at times uh, uh, when there is quite obvious oppression, right? So for instance, it makes sense for women to band together as women to promote women's rights when they, they have no right to vote. It makes sense for Gay people to band together when it's illegal to be gay, and 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 therefore identity politics serves a function. Is there a risk with contemporary identity politics, and what I mean by that, I suppose, is intersectional identity politics, uh, that it ignores the the progress that has been made, uh, and 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 actually, it's a kind of outdated approach.
1: Oh, I think, there's, there's, I think that's a serious problem. I mean, I remember once turning up, um, my brother had rented this house in the country and we all spent, spent house time in the country and my mother was there and my father died by that stage. And I turned up off, you know, fresh on some, off some demo, you know, with, with my placard and my dungarees and my aubergine hair and the red kickers and such like. And, uh, you know, and the... Um, I'm sure you look
0: wonderful, Simon.
1: You can imagine, can't you? It was in, back in the days when I had hair. You know and an earring and everything and i had my placard which probably said something frightfully inviting like you oh, i'm gay you know yeah. and my mother said to me <laughs> she said darling why do you have to make such a noise about all this and i said to her so that one day we don't have to and she went oh oh that makes sense She said do you want to drink
0: Yes. Yeah, most of it. my mother's
1: sentences ended with do you want to drink
0: <laughs> <laughs> she sounds great <laughs>
1: She, she was she was a very she's very funny and my favorite thing she ever said about me though she said once to her friend a, a very a lady lady Olga come on, Aege, she said I overheard her say after I'd gone to Sussex University uh, Olga said to my mother what is Simon doing and um, my mother said he's run away to Sussex and he's become a communist do you want to drink
0: <laughs> very nice
1: <laughs> I had I'd run away to Sussex but I hadn't
0: particularly become a communist you hadn't become a communist I, I do. I do wonder sometimes about this 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 uh, this tendency to to almost almost uh, overlook progress and pretend it hasn't happened. I mean, if I think about, uh, for instance, right. So th- this article in the Pink News, which came out today, which I retweeted because I couldn't believe it. It's about um, a group of hikers who are claiming that the outdoors is exclusionary if you're trans or gay or a lesbian. Uh, it's as though people who are no longer oppressed. Are desperate, they're nostalgic for oppression, so they'll find anything to the degree that they will say the countryside is homophobic. When of course um, it absolutely in what isn't. way
1: what was I mean, I find it incredible to think that the idea that the countryside is homophobic to lesbians. I mean, have you never have you never seen a lesbian in hiking boots? Exactly. I mean hello. Exactly, you know, they're always I mean, hiking. Many yeah. of my lesbian friends are wedded to the countryside in the most Voracious way to the extent that puts me completely out of. I'm reminded of, um, of Fran Leibovitz's comment when she said, "I'm not so much a back to the country kind of girl. I'm more sort of a back to the hotel kind of girl," yeah. <laughs> which is which is me. So I mean, on, you know, I think what. So there was a study last week, I think, or the week before, by Civitas about the progress of Black and Asian people in senior jobs and there's a perfectly good argument to say well is that really going to be our litmus test i mean adolf reed in the states would argue that this obsession with you know more black lawyers more wall, black people on wall street is actually simply a a, a, a a smoke screen to hide class division so i and he's a black intellectual i make that point because he's making it from that 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 viewpoint so there's a perfectly valid criticism to say well you know, are we interested whether there's more black lawyers or whatever? But let's take it as a litmus test of progress that there are more black and Asian background people in those senior jobs over the last 15 years. And this is a, this is a sign of progress. And um, the head of policy at the Runnymede said, and I'm slightly paraphrasing, but not, she said, um, this is just a divisive attempt to hide the structural racism in Britain. And I thought, I didn't know what she was trying to achieve with that quote, because it does seem to me that one should say, at all points, we've made progress. Now, having made progress, where are the issues that really matter, That where we've got to do some more work, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I found with, with with advances for lesbians and gays when I was involved in Stonewall, you know, what happens is that, as you rightly pointed out at the beginning, as I echo in the book, is that to start with, it makes real sense to sink your divisions because you've got a really clear aim. Yeah. You know, we, we were set up saying, so well, we knew where the money was. That was where the lesbians we knew where the lesbians and gays were. So we'd get the money off them. We knew where Parliament was and we knew what we wanted. Yeah. So off, off we go. Once you get equality. The point of getting equality is not to maintain the status of that group as a group of people who are oppressed. The point of equality is to release the individuality and aspiration and talents and ambitions of those people to live the lives as they want, rather than constrained by the inequality.
0: Yes, but the prob- that, that's why I have a, a, a problem with modern intersectional politics, which says colour blindness, for instance, uh, is a form of racism, and that, you know, that, that idea that we should reach a point where, I mean, Sam Harris compared it to ginger hair, red hair, where we all notice when people have red hair, but nobody cares in any respect in terms of employment or discriminatory elements, all that kind of thing. That's the goal. But when you have, uh, activists who have, who have bought into this, this, uh, this intersectional worldview, where every, everything is underpinned, every human interaction is underpinned by structural racism, and that's just a belief that they have. Uh, uh, they would say that Martin Luther King's dream was a kind of racist dream. And I think this, this kind of unpicks the work of civil rights luminaries.
1: Well, I think part of the problem is when, is when anybody decides that the concept of black or female or gay is a sort of, as I say, it's a sort of monolith. Mm, you know, yeah. I mean, CEOs are always saying to me in, in the business that we have, you know, we need more women. And I always say to them, well, let's pop out in the high street and get six assorted there. Yeah. And they go, of course I don't mean that. And I say, oh, no, you don't mean it. I had a fascinating um, theatrical experience the other day. I went to the Young Vic, and there was a terrific play by a guy called James Graham. And it's about the legendary um, clashes on television between Gore Vidal and um, Buckley, William Buckley Jr. And this is a kind of seminal moment in broadcasting because it's the... And we wouldn't be here doing this if they hadn't done that this is the this is the invention of the kind of pundit if you like um and it made huge impact on on the american media but it's also william buckley the the if you like the the midwife the male midwife of Reaganism and that kind of culture war is Republicanism in its yeah. more benign sort of sense. And also, of course, Gore Vidal, you know, the great sort of, in a sense, the aristocratic liberal in America. So there are so many interesting issues that transfer from, from 68 into our current um, uh, context. Now, William Buckley, this Republican guy, was played by David Harewood, a black actor. In the play, I mean, the cast play a number of roles, but one of the other black actors plays James Baldwin. And James Baldwin is the voice, if you like, of of a black, he's one of the powerful black voices in um, in the narrative. What was fascinating was that you start off watching this, and of course you notice that David Howard is black. He's such a great actor, and it was such a great part that there was no significance to his race in playing that part. The value of him playing that part was that he inhabited the character of this person, William Buckley. And I'd never really experienced that quite as much. I, and I was in the front row as it happened. And so we were absolutely hand-to-hand combat with the actors. And it was, And I found that a really fascinating experience to think, is this the first time when I've really seen a black actor being put into that role so prominently where it's not about race. Yeah, yeah. Now, that does happen more and more, but I think that's where I want to be. But at the same time, it seems to me that when people tell stories about their lives, you know, where they come from, their culture, their family heritage, all that is, you know, it's crucial. So being black, being white will never lose significance,
0: yeah, because that, it can be associated
1: right. with a whole bunch of stuff. So, so I'm not into oh, there's no difference, but, but I, don't I am th- into saying whether you whether the difference becomes only about race. or yeah, but only I, I don't think I don't think
0: people who've who've been pushed been pushing for the ideal of color blindness were ever suggesting that it wasn't important. They were never suggesting that race or background wasn't no. wasn't a key factor of who you are. What they were saying is that we shouldn't uh, treat people differently on that basis, and I think that's the ideal. Yes. That, that I fear has been lost.
1: Well, I think that's right. And I mean, it's, But it is one of the things, I think, where... I mean, that's what the book tries to do. That's why it's called The Power of Difference. I mean, it's not just about two individuals or several individuals combining their difference. It's about the difference within us. It's about this, we do belong to groups. And more than that, we like to belong to groups. So, you know, that's a powerful feeling for us, the, the in-group affection, if you like, that we have for each other. And there is a lot of evidence to suggest... Slightly worryingly, that we treat people who are like us, everybody does this better than we treat people okay. who are not like us. Yeah, I mean, but there's some fascinating work by the wonderful Michael West from the King's Fund in the NHS, where they talk about this idea of modeling civility. So, the more diverse staff you have, the more they treat each person that they're like with more civility, but that aggregates more civility overall. So, you begin to model more civility in the organization. So there's fascinating ways in which these things can be very positive. Um, But it's this distinction between the group we belong to and the individual we are. And and it's the conflation of personal identity with ideas of group discrimination or disadvantage that's the problem.
0: Yes. And I I can often think that this kind of conflation can do a disservice to the very noble cause of ensuring that everyone is equal. I mean, for instance, I feel that I mean, let's talk about the the LGBTQIA plus initialism or whatever else we want to call it. I mean, I don't feel that represents me in the slightest. And I feel what it does, and particularly with the new developments with the, with the rainbow flag, I mean, I think it's a monstrosity now. I think it looks ridiculous. And I think it makes those causes look ridiculous because it's very rebarbative for people from outside these communities looking on thinking, why are you painting crossroads with these rainbow colours? Why, why are you painting a staircase uh, with these bright garish colours to pretend that it wasn't inclusive before. It, it seems to be a kind of, you know, we've reached equality, we've got equality in the law. So now let's just uh, turn it into a kind of corporate signifier to suggest that we're on the right side of history or whatever. It just It's not something that I, I, I am
1: in favour of. Well, there are two or three things about it, I think. And I, I, I mean, I broadly have uh, the same anxieties. I mean, firstly, LGBTQIA+. I mean, they've turned one of my great passions in life, which is the equality for lesbians and gay people, into a slightly secure password on the internet.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> so yeah. that's one. If no one knows that's what one it means. I mean,
0: I, I know what it means because I have to know what it means. But
1: Yeah, but, 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 but what does it mean as a category? Does it have integrity as a category? Somebody said to me the, the other day, are you LGBT? And I said, well, you can't be all of them. Yeah. You know, and, and then you go LGBTQIA+. Now, there were some people at Sussex University I heard about recently. This was a heterosexual married couple who termed... And I won't use the Q word in its full thing because it's what they shouted at me when they broke my ribs, so I'm not going to use that. But they termed themselves a Q couple. Well, if, they, if a heterosexual couple can be under the Q label, when you add up LGBTQI, T, spirit, ABCDEFG plus. It's about 85 percent of the population yeah now my point is that, that i've grew up in gay politics with people talking about the heterosexual community and i never thought that had much coherence it seemed to me a bit big but well, of course you know to have any meaningful m- any meaning so i just am worried about what it, firstly what does it mean in other words what's this community you're trying to describe because that can only have meaning as a group back to what i said before if what you're trying to argue is that there's some kind of group disadvantage or advantage to describing that group. And the problem here is precisely the conflation of personal identity with these notions of of the integrity of the group as a sort of analysis and way of understanding the world. And I was interested the other day, I went to something, I was speaking at something, note, if you're ever asked to speak after dinner in Coventry Cathedral, take thermals.
0: (laughs) That's great advice, I will bear that in mind. You
1: know, bear that in mind, Basil Spence never, never prepared for that. Goodness me, the hand of God is a cold one <laughs> um, anyway, there I was speaking there, and it was lovely, great event and um, sat down at the table afterwards, and there was two w- young women next door to me with the bus cuts and the the suits. I mean, you know, Helen Keller would have known they were lesbians. <laughs> And I said, you know, we had this fascinating conversation. They said something really interesting, which I hadn't really heard before. They said young people, and they were university students, young people are under increasing pressure to define themselves more and more in a niche way. Yeah. So you've got to be, you know, trans, mass, demi, pan, whatever. Whereas actually they were saying, we just want to be lesbians, wouldn't you mind? And I thought that was really interesting that there's this idea that you, you've got to create a tribe. You've also got to create individuality, which is the ultimate dilemma yeah. for a teenager, isn't it? It's difficult. And this is very destructive because it's failing to understand what your possibilities are in the world and the reality of what... The disadvantages
0: are well. Yeah? The, the, these kind of uh, very fashionable uh, multiplicity of neo-genders, we might call them, with neo-pronouns, etc. It does strike me that with the proliferation of multiple new identities and genders and neo-pronouns that are assigned to each of those, and you know the, the list is, is is endless. It can be as 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 uh, endless as the imagination will allow. That this provides the opportunity for young people to be both conformist and rebellious because. Uh, there is that urge within the teenage years to do both of those things at the same time. And it does strike me that giving yourself a new identity, giving yourself new pronouns feels very rebellious. And at the same time, is something that all of your peers are doing. And I, and I did read this study the other week that said that 40 percent of young people, whoever the respondents were with this study, I think it was people between the ages of 16 and 25, 40 percent were identifying as LGBTQ. And statistically, that would mean that the majority of those people are heterosexual. And what therefore that does imply is that you have a, uh, a preponderance of heterosexual people identifying into a victim category. You know, p- people from a um, historically privileged group finding I w- a way. But I wonder, are they
1: identifying into a victim category, or are they identifying into a category which now feels not so much victimised because they're not identifying with the real. Uh, the victimisation that gays and lesbians now experience in the real world, let's talk about Britain, I'm not talking about Kenya or Uganda, but here is the potential for violence. That's it, pretty much. I mean, we have statutory regulation now in relation to discrimination, employment and so on and so forth. Now, I accept that's only remedy. You can't stop people doing it, but you can at least get remedy for doing it. But I would suspect that... It's the the comments, the language, it's that sort of thing which is upsetting and horrible, but the real threat would be actual physical violence. Now, that goes up and down, but it's still a minority uh, experience. I mean, I always say that prejudice may be an everyday event, but it's no longer an all-day event. So they're not actually identifying with being victims, are they? It strikes me they're identifying with precisely the opposite. I, I, I mean, I'm hasn't not so gay sure. now become so fashionable that you know, if you're if you're a five year old in the playgrounds of North London, you know, you don't get to talk. No one will talk to you unless you've got a lesbian parent or a gay godfather.
0: But I'm not so sure about that, Simon, because when I watch these TikTok clips that get shared all over the place, I'm not on TikTok, but they get shared on on Twitter, and you see young people who are identifying as what well, abrosexual or pansexual, whatever it is they've, they've, they've come up with that day, uh, and they talk about how oppressed they are. So, it, so I think there is yeah,
1: something yeah. alluring I, about I, this. us agree that there's a, I think there's a mixture of stuff in here. I think there is an element to which it's quite fashionable, it's a little bit, you know, it's a bit sort of off piece. it's a bit, you know, scarf around the neck, art college, dot, dot, you know, there's still a bit of that yeah. going on, I think. You know, so there's a little bit of, fa- you know, if you look at fashion these days, you know, look, I mean, recently the fashion shows, all the catwalks, you know, it's very androgynous stuff, isn't it? It's lots of blokes wearing skirts. And all. So I think there's an element to which that is very powerful. And now on television, if you look at the sort of represent, I don't know, Emily in Paris or, you know, there are lots of gay characters on television. They tend to be seen in quite a glamorous sort of light. So I think there's an element of that. But I agree with you. I think there's a whole lot of us. And I do worry, actually, when I very I seldom see them. But when I see these very extreme ones... Now I'm I'm this is an absolutely amateur judgment. I am in no way qualified to make any kind of medical or psychological judgment about this. But it they often feel to me that if I heard somebody say that to me, I would think this was a person in some distress. Right. So in other words, I think there's probably a mixture of things here um, going on. But But I go back to this idea that it's not just they claim a personal identity. The real danger is, I think, that the personal identity is entirely subjective. So it becomes this idea that I can define who I am based on nothing other than my word, what I say is me. And actually, by the way, because I say it, you can't challenge it because it's me that defines it. Yes. And the, the worry about that is, is that it's, it's an, it, I think this is a much bigger problem with politics. That is the subjectivity that is dogging politics at the moment. That is an ultimate alternative fact.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why so many gay people feel let down By Stonewall and and don't don't feel represented by them anymore. And I raise this, of course, because you were one of the founders of Stonewall. And I actually don't know any gay people anymore who think that Stonewall represents them. And and, and yet, of course, it was so important in terms of the acquisition of equal rights, lowering of the age of consent, equalising the age of consent, um, you know, gay marriage, etc. All of those incredible things that Stonewall achieved. And now it fundamentally says that all of those rights we fought for in terms of the recognition that we are same sex attracted, that we are people who are attracted to other members of our sex, that that is being rewritten and undermined by Stonewall who now say homosexuality means same gender attracted, which isn't what it means. And it, so it feels almost, you know, when you have Nancy Kelly saying things like uh, people who are not attracted to, to trans individuals, a lesbian who's not attracted to someone with a penis, uh, is it the equivalent of a sexual racist? Or should re-examine their... Their prejudice. I mean, that's the kind of trope that the homophobes used to say at us back in the 80s and 90s.
1: There is, there is a curious feeling about it. I mean, so a couple of points, I think. One is that when, one of the interesting things about about progress on lesbian and gay rights, if you look right back to Wolfenden, Mm. then the 67 Act, and then what we did uh, in Stonewall, uh, uh, through Stonewall in the early 2000s. So, One of the things that that the Wolfenden arguments were all around the role of law in private life. And Wolfenden's famous quote, uh, well, not famous, but one of his quotes is, is, that the law has no role in people's personal morality or immorality. Right. Now, the reason I make that point is that the advances we've made on lesbian and gay rights have always been made without talking about homosexuality. They've always been about the treatment of a group of people socially or legally in an unequal way so if you look at the narrative of how we won those lesbian and gay rights they were won by appealing to the great british public sense of fairness and saying do you realize that if our relationships are not recognized legally then what happens is that when our partner is in hospital we can't go and visit him or her we have no access to their medical rights. We have no access to the doctors. And when we die, we don't, our partner can't inherit the property. Da, 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 da. And people, I remember telling my sister about the, the hospital one. And my sister's fantastic. I mean, she's older than me. She's, she's she's. <laughs> so many of her kids' friends have come out to her. It's ridiculous because, well, she lives in Edinburgh and I used to perform in Edinburgh, so they saw me. She was horrified. She was outraged when she realized that. So, my point being is that we built alliances in Stonewall on two things. One was a bigger principle. So, it wasn't just about us, it was always about what is the big issue here. Not should lesbians and gays be parents, but how do we support everybody to play a role in one of the most important things that we do in society, which is bring up the next generation. Yeah. So, If you're citizens defending your country, that is absolutely fundamentally a part of being a citizen. So it was a bigger question. And what's happened now, I think, is tragically, it's it's become about individual satisfaction. It's not any longer about this group idea and this bigger principle. And the second thing that, I mean, if Stonewall wants to argue or lobby around trans issues, fine, help itself. It's a lobby group, it can make that decision. My argument with them has always been the way they do it. Yeah. Because I said this will divide the community. And as you identified, it has. But the legacy of Stonewall in all those achievements of, e- of equal rights, the legacy is that you talk to people you don't agree with and you try and find common ground with them. So that when you talk to religious people, you say, we're not asking you to think homosexuality is a jolly good thing and you're going to pop out and get yourself a boyfriend. What we are saying to you is, you know what it's like to be treated unequally under the law as a group. And they went, yes, we understand that. We went, fine, that's all we're asking. And that's very
0: interesting that you mentioned that. So this was, uh, I mean, obviously early on in Stonewalls, uh, after, soon after it was established, you're saying that this was always the approach, that this was, it was about finding the common humanity as a means to secure equal rights. Not
1: even the, not even the common humanity, it's simply the common principle yeah. of equal treatment under the law. I mean, it's a really simple idea to which people respond.
0: But then why is it that the Stonewall of today says, says actually the opposite? They, they, they say no debate. They say if, 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 if you criticise us, if you challenge us in any way, we will say you are hateful we will we will accuse you of bigotry we will well,
1: i think that's a symptom rather than a cause i think stonewall is a symptom of what's going on in politics generally at right. the moment and i think you're... Two or three things that have happened around identity politics in the politics sense of it. The first thing is that if you go back and look at the development of those autonomous groups, so-called, the, the black civil rights movements in the States, and of course many of those these identity groups are modelled at least on that idea in the first place. So the black civil rights movement, then you look at the women's movement, then you look at there's been a gay movement. All of those arose because mainstream um, liberal politics rejected them. So if you look back at the 60s in this country, you look at the Bristol omnibus um, uh, strike, the omnibus company said, we will not employ black people. The TNG, the union, sided with the bus company. You know, when you look at trying to get equal pay on the agenda of the TUC, the TUC sided with their male employ you know, their male members, and so it goes on. So you see the development of these voices as a way of trying to get into liberal politics. And the, and the other side of that, of course, is that on the right at those early points, the right wasn't interested in those collective voices at all. So they were rejected both by left and right. So that's one bit of the process. I think the second bit of the process is a peculiar idea. Back to your point about um the, the the teenage rebellion yeah. is that um, there's this weird thing about choice in the marketplace that we've had now you know neo- neoliberal economics on this very weird idea that you are an individual or at least it speaks your individual style if you wear calvin klein underwear
0: yeah yeah
1: and yet there are 40 million people who are yes, but of somehow course. that's an individual style choice And I think the third thing is therapy. I mean, everybody politically now is doing yoga and
0: Pilates.
1: (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's all about themselves. It's all happiness, fulfillment. That's no longer a collective concept. It's an individual concept. So when you bring all these things together, what you've got, I think, is a really dangerous cocktail which makes politics massively individualized and very subjective.
0: I mean, is it just is it just about the rise of narcissism? I know I, I read in the Sunday Times this week uh, this statistic, which I thought was astonishing, that in 1950, 12 uh, percent of people responding to this study agreed with the statement "I am a very important person," and by the time we reach 1990, that figure has gone up to 80 percent of people think that, and that's still going.
1: Well, and I but suppose that, all that stuff about you've really got to value yourself and blah blah. All that's absolutely fundamentally important. Yeah. But my point would be, what are we valuing ourselves for? What is our individuality in the pursuit of? You know, when you're in a relationship with somebody, what you do is you negotiate over 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, a way of living together, which you enjoy jointly, and then perhaps you have kids, and then you have a wider family, and then you have a family network, and then you have friends' network. You don't do it in an isolation. You know, this is part of a network of people with whom you interact and in whose happiness you have investment. Mm. So that's a collective exercise, it feels to me. Whereas, and, and certainly that to me is what trade unionism is about, is what Stonewall is about, For what all those groups are about. It's about collective happiness. Whereas actually now, to be honest, if people are kind of, you know, fulfilled, and, you know, they've got their own identity and they can define their own bit of the planet. That apparently is enough. Well, I reject that. I reject the purpose of that. The purpose of my uh, time in politics is to bring about collective change for the common good. And I'm not painting myself as some saint. I'm not saying, oh, God, I'm so selfless. I want a bit of that. <laughs> mm.
0: Yeah. Where are you now uh, on the Stonewall issue in terms of how your your, your your view of them? Because I I have to be honest. I've invited representatives from Stonewall onto my show probably about 15 times so far to to defend the positions that they publicly take and not once have they agreed to do so. Uh, They've just, I think they've just sort of decided uh, they're going to fight this in this kind of very antagonistic culture war way, which is just to divide the world into good and evil and claim to be on the side of the the angels.
1: I was written to by the former chair of Stonewall and told that I had put myself outside Stonewall. Well, that's that's my point. But the point at which that happens is Stonewall's turned itself into a a party, hasn't it? Or an organisation that's got a single political line. I think that, so the the damage is that Stonewall is not really able to say it represents all lesbians and gays and trans people. It can't say that with any credibility, because quite clearly, what we warned would happen, we warned them privately that if they did this, this would happen. They have divided the community they're supposed to represent. Yeah. So that's a problem. I think the second problem is that they don't clearly have the strategy to get themselves out of that mess. And so every time you see somebody, when they do very rarely stick their head above the parapet, they're not doing it in a way that's attempting to find solutions. I was struck the other day, I would say, and this is off the point, but it's it's a Labour Party point, but it's aligned. I was struck by Wes Streeting, who is shadow of, I think, education now, or whatever, Home Office, I can't remember. But Wes Streeting, you know, who is a significant figure in the Labour Party and clearly one day would like to be leader, so we see him as a significant player. He made a very distinct attempt, I thought, to get out in front of this argument and say there needs to be a discussion. So I thought that was interesting because that felt to me like the display of some real leadership. And that's part of the problem for Stonewall is it's not, doesn't appear to have that leadership that will find a way through all this. So I think it's in a very difficult position because it will see any solution to this. It will have to see it as a defeat. And that's I mean, that's not, that's not politics. Solutions are not defeats. Solutions are movements forward.
0: Do you feel at all sad about it, though, insofar as, you know, I think Stonewall largely trades off its the reputation that it uh, justly earned over many years. Uh, I feel like it's trashed its own reputation now. And I would go so far as to say most gay people don't think it represents them. So, I mean... Do you feel- I don't know what the
1: numbers are, but I absolutely share your sadness. I mean, it's, you know, when we started it in 1989 through a sort of weird naivety and enthusiasm, mm. really, we didn't know what we were doing, but it turned out by doing something very simple, i.e., arguing for equality, we did something that turned out to be tactically and strategically quite intelligent. Yeah. But honest to God, we didn't know what we were doing. And if we hadn't done it, somebody else would have done it. I mean, it's just, it happened to be us lot. And I feel deeply, deeply sad. Not that they've chosen to tackle the issue they've chosen. As I say, I don't really mind if they, you know, it's not up to me whether they lobby or whether they lobby. But what I'm really sad about is this failure to embrace difference, embrace the arguments that need to be had, and find practical ways through in the way that I describe with civil partnerships, where I mean, just to say, if you look at civil partnerships, a really good example where. We asked Stonewall, Stonewall asked the gays and the lesbians in 2003, you know, what's most important to you at the moment? And obviously, apart from musical theatre, they said um, everything that flowed from the fact that our relationships were not legal. So inheritance, all the things I mentioned before. So we looked around and we said, well... Well, I didn't. This is great, Angela Mason. You know, astonishing leader in Stonewall, and they looked around and they said, "Well, look, there's this civil partnership in Holland and France. They're a bit, there's a weaker." So they developed this idea of civil partnership, and the reason they did it was because they looked at the political landscape and went, "Well, the government's not going to reform marriage because it's really nervous about this." The church thinks it owns marriage. So in Parliament, the House of Lords, with Christian MPs and the bishops and their we're going to have no support at all. That's going to be really problematic. And thirdly, and most importantly, in a way, lesbians thought that marriage was part of the patriarchy and a tool of oppression and didn't want gays to volunteer for it. There wasn't an alliance to build around equal marriage. Now, we could have gone out there and just, you know, equal marriage, equal marriage, what do we want? Equal marriage now. You know, We could have done all that. What would have been the point of doing that? Because what we did with civil partnerships was deliver the benefits and the rights and responsibilities that people actually wanted. So that's the sadness, is that that could be done now.
0: I mean, that, that's a very uh, fascinating strategy, isn't it? Because, I mean, I, I knew a lot of gay men who were also against marriage and saw it very much as a kind of part of heteronormative culture, you know. Um, but by, by Actually, day- I was rather
1: against civil partnership for heterosexuals because I thought this is a sort of wrecking amendment. And then actually I began to think, no, actually, this is, this is a rather good, this is a weird, you know, it turns out well, we've invented something and then actually the, the heterosexuals have adopted it. And now they want it.
0: Know? I mean, it does. It, it did seem like a stepping stone, though, in a way, because once you'd secured civil partnerships, it made the, the argument for equal marriage a bit of a no brainer. Once it had all been implemented and everyone realised, oh, this is fine. You know,
1: it, here's the really interesting thing about why I think that happened, too, is that everybody loves a wedding. So when you go to civil partnership, Auntie Ada, forgive me, Auntie Ada, whoever you are, for stereotyping in this way, but just let's take Auntie Ada for a second, who's not terribly keen on the fact that her nephew, Andrew, is a woofter. Nonetheless, when she goes to woofter Andrew's civil partnership with James, the question changes. The question is, is Andrew happy? Because there he is. Being happy with James. So the whole parameter shifts, and everybody would call them weddings. We said that from the beginning, and yeah. was, that's exactly what happened.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, the, the downside of it was I do remember doing a, a, a thing when we, <laughs> for the Labour Party, I did some fundraiser. And I did say, actually, I said, it's, you know, I built it up. I said, it's fantastic. We finally got to actually achieved, you know, equality under the law with civil partnerships. And there was like yay, in the room. And as the... As the cheers declined, I said, well, I'm not going to do it. I said, he's certainly not having the effing flat. And <laughs> of course, that got a huge laugh as well, because that's the responsibilities bit. Yeah. You don't get to marry unless you also get to accept that it's divorce. Of course. Or do you want to know, actually, one jolly fact. Here's a jolly fact. What is the? Do you know that there are three differences between um, gay marriage and heterosexual marriage?
0: Well, I mean, I, I know the obvious one.
1: You can't get married, in a, you can't get married, gay married in a church. Uh,
0: what are the other two?
1: The other two, sorry, civil partnerships, civil partnerships, between civil partnerships and... Because all and the marriage. rights are the same, aren't they? All of the... Yeah, the rights are exactly the same. But the three differences are this, is that you can't have a civil partnership or a gay wedding in a church. Secondly, in a marriage, as opposed to civil partnerships, so in the days when there wasn't gay marriage... The, the, the relationship is sealed in a civil partnership by the signing of the documents. Mm. In a heterosexual marriage, the relationship was sealed by the exchange of the vows and witnessed by the documents. Yeah. I was a law student. But the third thing, which is absolutely fabulous, is you cannot annul a, a same-sex civil partnership on the grounds of non-consummation.
0: Right. Okay, I do not know that.
1: And the reason for that is that they can't work out what consummation means for lesbians.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, just ask a lesbian, I would say.
1: So tied in are they to the notion of reproductive and and penetrative sex that you suddenly realize there are lots of lawyers sitting around in in civil service land going, yes, well, well, perhaps a dildo?
0: (laughs) You really think they had those conversations? I'm to work very, it out.
1: very much hoping so.
0: <laughs> do you ever think that, with all you've sort of achieved in terms of activism and gay rights, that do you want do you want to go back to comedy at all? Now that it's sort of now we've sort of got there,
1: I'm not entirely appreciative of you talking about going back to comedy.
0: Well, <laughs> <laughs> insofar as doing another live show or doing another,
1: well, funny you should mention that. But I'm going to try. Uh, I'm going to turn the book into a show.
0: Right. Okay
1: so it will be a sort of lecture with laughs really The power of difference you know the funny the funny version yes Um, because actually (laughs) a long time ago i was a law student i mentioned that very briefly and my mother that's my mother she gets mentioned rather a lot poor dear i used to do a joke about her actually saying trying to come out to my mother i used to say you know uh, i'm I'm gay what what do i say nancy you know poof ponce queer bender and she thought i was talking about one of her friends hello i'm nancy poof ponce queer bender (laughs) And I'd forgotten this joke and somebody very sweetly sent it to me on uh, direct message on Twitter the other day. So thank you for them. My mother said to me once, um, you'll always be able to use your law degree in a sort of moment of desperation. And I said, to her, actually, I won't because they run out. And uh, after six years, uh, but I'll always be able to use my stand up. Yeah. So when I present one of the great things about doing stand up for 10 years, is it just I mean, I, I had a weird time I and mean, I left it because I think I ran it up against the wall. And I I don't think I understood my relationship with the audience in the way that, funnily enough, years and years and years on, I feel much more confident with now. So I think I kind of freaked out and didn't quite know how to do that. But nonetheless, I've consistently used what I learned from other comics and watching people and trying out stuff myself. So I've kind of always used it in presentations. So So it will be quite a challenge to go back and not do pure stand-up, But do something which is a a hybrid.
0: Because when was the last time you did a full stand-up show as as just a stand-up show?
1: (laughs) Are you you sitting down? Yeah, go on. Thirty years.
0: So I think I was fair. I was fair in my statement that going back to comedy.
1: It's like saying when, but I, I felt you were saying to me when, Andrew, when are you going back to satire?
0: <laughs> but no, I I mean, I, you know, I, I've even, because I took a long time off. Uh, well, I say a long time. I took about a year off stand up and I had people saying, when are you going back to this? And um,
1: but but it's, you do. I, you did stand up.
0: Yeah, I've done stand up for uh for 15 years, 15 odd years.
1: No, oh, I didn't realise you did stand-up. I just always thought you are funny on paper.
0: No, I did, a, I did. The last time I did a tour, a, a solo stand-up tour, was start of 2019. But of course, the pandemic has thrown everything, threw everything out. So then, you know, then, but then all of us weren't really doing stand-up at all. Um, but doing, no, doing no. the gigs post-pandemic, you start to think, you start to get the bug back again a little bit.
1: Well, when are you going to do Titania on stage? Well, we in did. full...
0: I'm, I'm not going to dress as her. We did it. We did a, a one-off show in the West End where an actor, Alice Marshall, played Titania and we did a mini tour of it. We had a full tour planned, but it got cancelled because of the pandemic. No,
1: I want to see... I'm sorry, I want to see you as Titania. I don't think... I mean, it's simply not going to work if you have a woman doing Titania. What's the point of that?
0: A number of people say... The point said, about
1: hey, Titania is she's a creation. She's a weird... She's character. She has distance from her creator.
0: I can't get away with drag. It, I don't have the uh, the body for it. I think.
1: I've got fantastically good legs, he says rather immodestly. (laughs) I want The only time I've ever worn fishnets and and, and stilettos and the brilliant thing about going to rent a pair of stilettos in Brighton is number one, you can rent a pair of black patent stilettos in Brighton. Of course. And the second thing is when you go into the shop to get them, you say, could I have a pair of ten and a half size black stilettos, please? And without batting an eyelid, they go patent or matte?
0: Yeah. It's just normal yeah. then. It's totally and normal. And I got
1: out of this. I got out of this cab, obviously to go see the Rocky Horror Show, and um, and my legs seemed to go on forever. And when I finally got out of the cab, this woman on the pavement applauded. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in Brighton, presumably.
1: She applauded my legs. I was so chuffed.
0: Well, I'm very envious because I certainly don't have. I would not have that reaction. Let's put it that. Unless I waxed. <laughs>
1: Well, I think we should try it. I'll volunteer Well, maybe. i you up one day. That'd be hilarious.
0: So if you're going to do this show, so you're going to develop, because oh, obviously that you cover lots of very, very serious themes in the book, but but of course I can see how this, I can completely see how this would work as a kind of, think, a, as a very... I entertaining think
1: it's trying, isn't it? It's trying to find some, it's trying to find some accessibility. One of the problems with this whole area, it's kind of got drowned in sort of the most ghastly undergraduate language which is it feels to me designed by certain people who whoever they are to stop everybody else understanding it you know intersectionality and anti-this and 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 white fragility and all these things which just infuriate me so I guess in a way it's a it's my little attempt to try and find some plain language to 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 go back uh to to try and explain it to people not explain it to people to articulate it so that that they can then respond to it and it'll be very interactive by the way.
0: I think that's a really good, I think that's a really much needed thing. And actually through humour, it can you can often get the message across. I even saw today someone reply to one of my tweets by saying, what does cis mean? And I think, I forget, if you're not in the midst of this culture war stuff, a lot of the language that's used is just, it's like a a kind of esoteric religious holy writ. They they just see it as something they don't understand. They're not, they're not part of it. And yet it does have an impact.
1: The the, the thing is, people throw around something like cis, but the point about cis is that Cis is a way of describing... uh, That has ideological, you know, uh, package. I mean, you can only only use the word cis if you think that there's a difference in your gender identity and your sex. Yeah. Because otherwise, there isn't. And so, therefore, there's no need to make a distinction between cis and trans. I mean, they're just two different kinds of things. They're not two different types of the same thing. They're different things, you know. And that's one of the things... Look, I'm very moved by the stories of many trans friends who... One particular, actually, which I should just—I'd love to mention—which is a woman called Jackie Gavin, who transitioned. I don't know; she's in her twenties or something. And she was she was Scott before she was Jackie, and I've known her for a while. And we did a panel together some time back, and she said something I just think I so want people to hear. So we did our, I did my bit, and then she did her bit. And then we got interested in stuff that we'd said to, uh, and then we started talking to each other. And then we threw it open to this audience about know, 56 people. And this woman about the third question put her hand up and said, I don't understand all this dead naming and, and, and misgendering and I'm in HR and I don't know what to do. And Jackie was fantastic. She leant forward, And the first thing she watched, is, well, first thing, she's from Glasgow, she said, first thing she she says, just calm down.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> To just ask. And then she said this fantastic thing. She said, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Scott's bravery. I carry him with me everywhere I go. He's part of who I am. And you could feel the room just going, oh. Yeah. Oh, 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 that's the story here. So Fanta- I- yeah. Now, it wouldn't occur to me, you've noticed all the way through that, and it wouldn't occur to me not to do this, I describe um, Jackie as she. Yeah. It, wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to me not to encounter Jackie socially as she.
0: Yeah, but, th- but that's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I've spoken to so many people about this where, you know, you talk about gay, gay people, lesbians, feminists, the kind of people who've, who have always known uh, trans people. They've been friends with trans people. They've loved trans people all their lives. And all of a sudden, because of the militancy of a kind of extreme wing of trans activism, uh, they're now, suddenly these people are being called transphobic. And now more and more people are mm-hmm. refusing to use Pronouns, according to what what other people how other people would like to be addressed, as a matter of political principle. So actually, the, the sort of toxicity of the activism has has as it has, a, has a, had a regressive
1: effect. Well, I think there's some. I think that's I think that's right. And I think one of the reasons is that. I think we have to think, those of us that, that are, 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 you know, believers in liberalism, mm. like, we're liberals, we believe in the notion of social change, we believe in the change in these norms, and we're not, we're not conservatives, so we're, we're in a sense, we're, we're, we're well, I wouldn't just as as to say we're necessarily we're all radical, but there's a range of radicalism within uh, yeah. the liberalism. So we're interested in change. But the thing about change is that you, you, you know, you have, it's no good changing things and then being out there on your own. You, obviously when you change things, you've got to find ways of bringing people with you. And if you look back over the th- last 30, 40 years, one of the things that's really damaging, I think, is the way in which um, the right always exploited immigration, but the left refused to talk about it. Yeah. And the more the left refused to talk about it, the more the right was able to exploit people's fears about it. Yeah. So, And similarly, you know, if you suppress things and start banning things. I mean, your free speech book is extraordinary on this. If you start to, to push those down and, and forbid people, you don't solve the problem. Yeah. What you do is you create resentment. And I think that's the fundamental flaw in a lot of this stuff. When, when Oliver Dowden goes on, you know, speaks to the Heritage Foundation or whatever in America and starts talking about, you know, questioning empire or whatever or or so on and so forth is a, is a sign of decadence, you know, I mean, I just think he's using these issues in a way that divides rather than helps mm. to find solutions. There are perfectly legitimate questions to be asked and fascinating questions, which Satnam Sanghera has done in his empire, the book Empire Land, about empire colonialism and how it affects us today. Equally, it's the same and mirror image of what you're describing, which is that when you say, I believe in biological sex, you're transphobic. Yeah. Well, neither of these viewpoints helps because what they do is they suppress the expression of difference, and they express, they suppress the making of mistakes. I, I put them in quotes. I hate people who do that, but I put them in quotes because they're not mistakes. They're things that inadvertently offend or upset or people take offence to or whatever. Yeah. That's how we learn. We learn by those interactions. And yes. so when people at either end of that political spectrum exploit those divisions in a way that increases the division then we don't find ways of talking to each other and it's only through that dialogue that we'll find the solution
0: well it sounds to me like the approach that your friend jackie was taking was much better insofar as it's like ask me the question let's have the conversation that like, could you bring people along like you say so is the other it-
1: day on international day of whatnot you know and i mean every day is isn't it, every every it's always international veruca week or something. Isn't it? <laughs> um, uh, and, but International Day of, Against Homophobia or whatever, yeah. and transphobia and blah, 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 uh, she posted four pictures. Uh, Scott, when he was about, I'm guessing, six or eight or something. Scott, when he was about, I don't know, 19, judging by the hair. J- Jackie in the 80s. I mean, just, I mean, I've told her about this. I mean, just the most god-awful perm and a sort of <laughs> Diana and dress, which is just terrible. And then her now is rather elegant. Uh, I don't know what she is, 50 or something but she posted all four pictures yeah she posted her story and that's what she celebrated and I find that really really inspiring because it just gives people a way in yeah it's the real story it's not because the other equivalent the equivalent of the opposite is do you remember when you were a kid and you put your fingers in your ears yeah and actually pretended that you couldn't hear them telling you you had to go to bed yeah well, you close your eyes, but then they can't see you.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it 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 just strikes me as the most obvious thing is that is that peop- no one is ever persuaded by being shouted at. <laughs> you know, <or> being <laughs> but That's right.
1: But this is true. I, I, I'm keen to emphasise. I think this is true on the right and the left. I yeah. don't think it helps to call people who quite like Satnam. You know, Satnam is is a great book, Empire Land, because he talks about how much he loves being British and what it means to him to be a Brit. He's from 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 a Sikh background, and so on and so forth. It's a, it's a, it's a really interesting critique because it's so nuanced and so mixed, and yet people send him these vile emails telling him he's unpatriotic. Yeah, go back to where you came from, and it's like what Wolverhampton?
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: it, you know what I mean. He's not unpatriotic. In fact, he's profoundly patriotic. He loves what this country actually is, and that doesn't help either.
0: Yeah, I don't think this is a specific problem on the left or the right. I think it's no. it, it happens across the board. I think it's just that now. Uh, the most obnoxious voices tend to be amplified by social media. So
1: the only things I retweet are people who are nice about my book, obviously. Oh, you should Power always
0: retweet praise.
1: Power of Difference, by the way, available from all good booksellers. Right here. Um, uh, fourteen ninety nine, I think. Thank you very much, Andrew. Um, <laughs> So I retweet things that say how marvellous my book is. I'd actually happily retweet something that said it was crap. And then I'd probably add a comment. And then I retweet things that I think are funny. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, Twitter stream, which is called Why You Should Have a Duck. <laughs> just the best. I love ducks, but it's just the best thing. If you're just having a horrible day, honest to God, just go on that. It just really? makes you smile. I don't, I
0: don't see ducks and... as being particularly affectionate or being particularly pet worthy.
1: What, me? No, ducks. Oh, they're lovely. Are they? They're so funny.
0: I prefer a it or something.
1: They're just lovely. But, I mean, in other words, I only retweet things. So I think there's a real problem with people just tweeting for, you know, this is virtuous. I agree with this. Well, actually, who cares? I mean, stop putting the Ukrainian flag on you. Really? Or, or indeed. You know, if you're going to put your Ukrainian flag on your Twitter handle, I want to know whether you're in favour of NATO um, having a uh, 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 safe airspace or whatever it's called or not i want to know whether you're in favor of having troops yeah. on the ground or not i want to know whether you've given money to the ukrainian relief fund or not i don't want you just to put a bloody ukrainian flag on your it's it's, it's
0: those it's those empty things where you know i mean for instance when people put things right statements like they're anti-fascist on their bio, and i think well everyone is i just d- I'd, ass- I'd assume you were why why do you have to say that if, if, if <laughs> it, it feels futile to me
1: I'm deeply in favour of the style of some of the Hitler Youth. However, <laughs> I ignore their politics. So I'd like to say that I'm anti-fascist in a political sense, but fashion-wise, I think I'm quite pro-fascist. Well, I mean, I
0: mean they had Hugo Boss. I mean? didn't they? I mean, they had Hugo Boss uniforms. So you know.
1: Well, you know that is a problem these days, isn't it? I, I've got you know I've got a Hugo Boss suit or two, but it doesn't turn <laughs> me into a guy lighter.
0: You shouldn't say that because you'll be cancelled for that.
1: You think it will? Do you think I'll be cancelled?
0: Eventually. They must come after Hugo Boss sooner or later. I mean, the the, 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 the the tendency to dredge up any kind of connection from the past. Any
1: kind of old thing. But look, look, it, I, I do think we, we also have to think about, uh, uh, um, you know, what is what is the answer to some of these things? You know, we're in a dire political situation where it's extremely difficult, yeah. where people impute motives to statements which, which they don't deserve. So I have this thing when I talk about behaviour and language as being um, careless, thoughtless or malicious. So oh, yeah. careless is when you, you... I mean, I said the other day a thing I was doing. I said, oh, you know, I said, the, the bacon sandwich. I said, the great British snack. And the bloke with a yarmulke on his head in the front row went, not for me. And it was very funny. Yeah. And that was great. made a laugh. And I went, oh, yeah, that's all this. Um, that's one Hello, guys, this one I can't bear either when there's men and women in the street. But, you know, that's people say that in Yorkshire and blah, blah. I think that's colloquial, isn't
0: it? That's a colloquial. Yeah. yeah.
1: But, but thoughtless is where there's a gap between intention and effect. Malicious is when you mean it. So let's set that aside for a minute. But this gap between intention and effect. And what happens is that people take that gap and they move the thoughtless into the malicious. Yes. I totally and I think, agree. And that is, that is, it happened to Kate Clancy, for instance. Yes. There was no nuance to the discussion of Kate Clancy's writing. I don't know whether viewers remember that, but she was the person who wrote about her pupils. Yeah. And then a, a group of people objected to the way in which she wrote her pupils and said it was ableist and it was racist and it was et cetera, et cetera And then a bunch of pupils wrote a letter saying, actually, we were the pupils and we think it's fine. And then one of them who'd been described as having almond eyes, um, she is uh, an Iranian-origin girl, and she wrote a piece in The Times saying, actually, I use the phrase armadize myself, I put it in my poetry, it's a great compliment in my culture, duh da So in other words, there was real complexity to what had happened here. And Kate Clancy was able, should and... Uh, 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 and was able to some extent to acknowledge that. But she essentially got trapped in the spotlight. But that's
0: exactly what I'm talking about. Someone like Kate Clanchy, who's, let's face it, progressive credentials couldn't be more well-established, you know. And then you have these, it was a trio of, of activists online going after her, and they have form with being particularly vicious, actually. But their initial thing is to say, she's racist. She's evil, in other words. She's a sinner. And rather than think, okay, what did she mean by that? Could she have inadvertently caused offence? As it happens, as you point out, the people she was describing weren't offended. So, in fact, no one was offended here. It was people taking offence on someone else's behalf. So,
1: in a sense, I mean, with the best possible will in the world, and don't misinterpret this, um, who cares if somebody's offended?
0: Uh, Yeah, I agree. I've
1: just been sent a form where I've been asked to speak at a school and I'm going to go and do that. And one of the things the form says that I promise not to say anything that will cause offence. Well, I've scored that out for two reasons. Number one, what I say needs to be judged on the basis of evidence and data. Hmm. not. Uh, number two, not on the subjective offence taken by somebody in the audience. Yeah. Because actually, one of the things that's really difficult in these situations is that when these things happen, it strikes me there's a two-part process that we need to go through. One is that when somebody says, I'm offended, it's or I'm upset, or that makes me angry, or, or I'm angry at that, or whatever actually we need to hear that and we need to hear that we need to listen to hear that not listen to respond to it so we we need to take that seriously. but we also need to take seriously the person so i'm terribly sorry i didn't mean it
0: yeah yeah oh
1: really because then there's a conversation and then we have to jointly decide what we do about it but the minute you define the crime then of course you find them guilty and you meet out the punishment all in one
0: well that's why a lot of this sort of these uh these attempts to cancel people uh A lot of it strikes me as just a vengeance, you know, as opposed to saying, look, you offended me there. Can we have a conversation about it? Um, Because it was probably not intentional. Uh, Just leap straight to the point at which we want that person fired. Uh, We want their reputation trashed. Do You know what I mean? That's the distinction.
1: I do wonder where it comes from. I think it partly comes from insecurity. Mm. I think that I mean, I noticed that in my own life, just to I don't know, see if this works. I noticed, I made a documentary sometime back called The Trouble with Gay Men, and the director rather brilliantly sat me down in front of Larry Grayson and made me watch some Larry Grayson from 1970 whenever on television when he toasted The Generation Game, and I howled with laughter. Back in the day, when I was a radical student at Sussex University, where, of course, we invented the cloud persons lunch, thank you very much, and, you know, we were appalled by Larry, uh, Larry Grayson and John Inman and these people because they were... Deeply offensive, negative stereotypes, blah blah blah. Now I watch it and I just think, actually, they were both masters of their craft. Oh yeah, and they're incredibly funny. And by the way, we all know gay men like that. Yeah. So what's that about? That's about confidence to some extent, isn't it? And I don't mean personal problems. I mean confidence in the civic space, if you like. So I understand when people have a reaction that is defensive or or perhaps out of kilter, or out of, yes, out of proportion, perhaps. Yeah. And I think we have to hear that because we have to try and understand where it comes from. It's the coupling of that reaction with justifying the punishment. Yeah. Because actually you have to do more than just say, I feel offended, therefore. There's got to be a more objective uh, um, um, basis on which you make the subsequent decisions than just personal upset. Yes.
0: Well, I'm glad you raised this because we are are running out of time, but I did want to ask you uh, whether you are feeling particularly positive about, given given our current climate and the political tribalism and this impulse to uh, attack rather than to discuss, (laughs) do you feel optimistic that we can move beyond this and that things can improve? Because every year it seems to me that these problems are getting worse.
1: It depends where one's looking at it, I think. One of the difficulties is that if you look at the states and here, and you look at the big political situation, that more and more, or fewer and fewer, constituencies are open to change between parties or whatever. Mm. So part of the problem there is that your credibility in terms of the party, in terms of the electorate, is actually determined by your credibility in terms of the party. By which I mean you have to win the selection, you have to win the primary. Mm. And the way you tend to do that is appealing to party members and they tend to be more one way or the other than your average person. So I think there's a danger that we've got to somehow think about the electoral consequences of that. So I think on that level, and every time electoral reform, and I don't know what the answer is, by the way, but it seems to me every time we ought to somehow try and make constituencies much more contestable. And I think that's, that's something the political parties are never going to agree to. So I'm pessimistic, but I also think it needs to be done so we ought to go on talking about it. I think on a personal level, I do think there is a sense increasingly at the moment of bewilderment by the vast percentage of people about the behaviour of the extremes. Mm. And when you tell people about it, they are absolutely horrified. Yes. And they go, what are we doing? Now, part of the problem with this is a lot of this has been done by stealth. So Stonewall, these other agendas, they've entered without people really thinking or being told about or being warned about what the consequences are. So I think what's happening now is that people are becoming more aware that there are consequences to this apparently being nice to people. That actually turns into something which means you've got to put pronouns at the bottom of your email if you don't agree with it. I don't mean to single pronouns out. It's just an example. You've got to say the murder of George Floyd. You know, every every step's got to begin with that. Well, why? I mean, I heard a in you know, a client the other day, somebody who was told off as saying the death of George Floyd.
0: Well, what's wrong with that?
1: That's, that's well, well, it's not murder, and we need to identify the fact that it was murder, not death. Now, the point is he didn't mean to denigrate the awfulness of the experience yeah. of the family and of Floyd. What he just didn't realise there was a significance to the different words. So my point is that these things have got into the system now. They've got into the way in which lots of companies and others are working. And I think the more that people realise that there are implications of that, what we've got to do is raise them so that we can discuss them. Yeah, I'm not suggesting another viewpoint that needs to win as opposed to the one that I think's got some traction at the moment. I'm precisely not suggesting that. I'm precisely suggesting the way forward and my optimism lies in our ability to create dialogue.
0: Well Simon Fanshawe that strikes me as a very very good note to end on. Thanks very much for joining me today.
1: Well it was a pleasure. Thank you for making me think.
0: This has been the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and my guest, Simon Fanshaw. Please do check out Simon's book. It's called The Power of Difference, Where the Complexities of Diversity and Inclusion Meet Practical Solutions. That's available to buy wherever you normally buy your books. And if you enjoyed the podcast today, please do like and subscribe and tell all your friends and come back next week where we'll have another fantastic guest. See you then.